thanks for joining us for the Heritage Bible Church podcast from Lincoln, Nebraska. We desire to be a gospel-centered community seeking to glorify Christ and love people well. We hope you enjoy today's podcast. And I would invite you to take your Bibles and go with me to John chapter 1. Again, the Gospel of John chapter 1. Where last week we were introduced to our good buddy Johnny B, John the Baptist. We talked about the fact that this guy is an eccentric character to be sure. In some ways strange, in some ways captivating. John the Baptist is an eccentric character, there's no doubt about it. Um, He lived out in the wilderness, did his work primarily out in the wilderness. He was known for wearing camel's hair and a big leather band around his waist. He was a Nazarite. Having taken the Nazarite vow, he would never have cut his hair. So you can just imagine, dude out in the wilderness, long hair. I'm guessing it was wild, okay? Maybe he stored some of those bugs he ate in his hair. I don't know. But he's a wild-looking dude. He's also a preacher who preaches fire. He's known for saying things like, you brood of vipers, stuff like that. Eccentric character, preaching fire, baptizing people. And so you understand, even from this initial introduction, that there are a lot of people going out to see him, a lot of people going out to hear him. Who is this guy? What is he all about? And one of those groups of people were some of the religious who's who of the day. A group of priests and Levites, we'll be introduced to them in verse 19, John chapter 1, sent from the Pharisees, as the text will eventually tell us. They are from the Pharisees, and they've gone out as a kind of delegation from the religious establishment of the day in Jerusalem. They've gone out to see John the Baptist, and that's where we find our text, John chapter 1, verse 19. So check it out with me. And this is the testimony of John when the Jews, or we find out later, verse 24, the Pharisees, sent priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, who are you? Now, as we will see the text develop, we'll understand that the prevailing wind of the day had to do with the Messiah. So underneath this question, who are you? John the Baptist knows the real question is about the Messiah which we get at in verse 20. He confessed and did not deny, but confessed twice. The Apostle John uses the language of confession. He's doubling down. John the Baptist is doubling down on this statement. I am not the Christ. So if we're going to be clear on one thing, the Baptist, Johnny B, is saying, it's not me. I'm not the big deal. I'm not the Messiah. I'm not ultimately the one you are looking for. But verse 21, they go on to say, and they asked him, what then? Are you Elijah? He said, I am not. Are you the prophet? He answered, no. So they said to him, who are you? We need to give an answer to those who sent us. What do you say about yourself? So they are bent on finding out the identity of John the Baptist. As I read this and thought about it this week, I thought about a cult classic uh, in which a Spaniard asks a guy in a mask, who are you? And the masked man responds with, I'm known to be trifled with. And then the guy says, I must. No, right? And he says, get used to disappointment. 
That's essentially what John the Baptist does here. He's not giving him a straight answer. He won't say it, right? But much like the unspoken question in the movie Princess Bride is, is he the Dread Pirate Roberts? Or does he claim to be the Dread Pirate Roberts? This is the question ultimately on these guys' minds. Is he the Messiah or is he, better yet, is he claiming to be the Messiah? The attitude that we find in the Pharisees throughout the Gospel of John is, we know he's not. Not just about Johnny B, even about Jesus. The question they want to know is, is he claiming to be? Because we're going to have to deal with that. That's the attitude. We're going to have to deal with that. Is he claiming to be the Messiah? Now, understanding that makes what John the Baptist says next so interesting and so important. While he's very clear that he's not the Messiah, what John does go on to say is, but I am connected to him. I am tethered to him. So check it out in your text, verse 23. He said, here's what he will say, I am the voice of one crying out in the wilderness, make straight the way of the Lord, as the prophet Isaiah said. What Johnny B. does here is point to the Old Testament, to Isaiah chapter 40 and verses 3 through 5, and this quotation, you can read it on the screen. A voice cries, in the wilderness prepare the way of the Lord. Now, Make special note of this language, capital L-O-R-D. This is an interpretation of Yahweh. Prepare the way of Yahweh. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. And the glory of the Lord shall be revealed, and all flesh will see it together. For the mouth of the Lord has spoken. My friends, this is a messianic prophecy about the revelation of the Messiah. Now, what they did not understand then and what we can understand now looking back is that this had multiple layers of fulfillment in Isaiah's own time period, not exactly in his time period, but in a time period in which the Israelites understood this message as having a fulfillment of a redeemer, a kind of redeemer in their day. But then finding another partial fulfillment primarily in the person of Christ, that the Messiah would come one day. And he would fulfill these prophecies. And so John is saying, I am the voice running ahead of this Messiah. Now, briefly, I will say that this has not found full fulfillment, for that will happen when Jesus comes again. And in that way, this statement will be ultimately true. All flesh, if you see it there, all flesh, all people will see that Jesus is the one. Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. Every knee will bow, and every tongue will confess Jesus Christ is Lord. So one day, we look forward to that day, don't we? One day, everyone will see it. But it finds partial fulfillment in this moment, as it were, in the first century, with John the Baptist as the voice pointing forward to the Messiah, pointing forward to Jesus of Nazareth. But pay, pay special note, to this language, and how John the Baptist imports it here to John chapter 1. The language is that of Yahweh. This is significant. Now, perhaps this would have gone right past the religious elite in this moment, but perhaps not. Perhaps not. What John the Baptist is saying, my friends, is this one that I'm going before, 
is Yahweh. He is Yahweh, the self-existent one, the God. Johnny B is saying, he's here. He's here. Yahweh is here. Well, regardless of their response, we don't know if they were confused or just rolling their eyes or whatever. Regardless of their response, they continue to pepper him with questions. Verse 25. Check it out in your text. So they asked him, then why are you baptizing? If you are neither the Christ, nor Elijah, nor the prophet. So they ignore his quotation of Isaiah and continue to pepper him with this question, why are you baptizing? Like, What gives you the right to baptize? Now, with this, let's pause for a moment and remind ourselves of what John was, in fact, doing. John has the voice crying out in the wilderness, preparing the way for this coming one, this Messiah, was preaching a message of repentance. He was calling the people of Israel to repent of their sin and to repent of this religion that they had created, that they had conjured, that is really not the design of Yahweh. He was telling them, repent, because the kingdom is breaking in. The Messiah is here. He's coming. So repent of your sins and make your heart right with God so that you can see him, so that you are prepared, people, so that you are prepared to receive the Messiah. He's here. He's coming. Prepare your hearts to receive him. This is John's message. And when people responded to that message, when they responded to repent of their sins and to expectantly await the Messiah, John would baptize them. Symbolic of this statement that they are saying, I am repenting. I want to be right with God and I want to be ready for his coming kingdom. So John baptized them, symbolic of that profession of faith, as it were, and also baptized them as a part of a kind of new community, following John the Baptist as disciples awaiting the coming of the Messiah. And so this delegation from the Pharisees, they are saying, like, who gave you permission to do that? Who gives you the right to do that? Because in doing that, in making these proclamations and in baptizing people, John is stepping into a realm of authority, which was a bit of a threat to these gods. Right? We didn't sanction you, so who do you think you are? Why are you doing this? Well, how does John respond to that? <laughs> By ignoring it. This is so great, my friends. He just completely bypasses that. Like, who are you to do this? He bypasses that to go straight back to who? Straight back to the one. So check it out in your text. John answered them, I baptize with water, but among you stands one you do not know. Or stands one you do not recognize. Even he who comes after me the strap of whose sandal I am not worthy to untie. This is remarkable, my friends. If you're familiar with this passage, with all of these texts with regard to Jesus and John the Baptist, perhaps you're allowing your eyes just to kind of move over it too quickly. Be reminded that John has already stated from Isaiah 40 that this one who is here, this Messiah, he is Yahweh. But now, 
guess what he adds? He adds the humanity of Christ. What does he say about him? He says he's got sandals. Think about it. Think about what he's saying. John the Baptist is saying to these men, these religious who's who, I'm telling you, I'm just a voice. Like my identity ultimately doesn't matter. I'm just a voice, but I am telling you something. Yahweh is here, and he's got sandals on. This is remarkable. He's got sandals on. Just imagine what these guys are thinking. But these sandals are on no mere man, no ordinary man. This is Yahweh and sandals, sandals that I'm not even worthy to touch. I'm not even worthy to unlatch. And I just want to encourage you to pause for a moment and imagine this moment. Imagine this scene. So to be very clear, as the next uh, verse says, they're in Bethany, beyond the Jordan or across the Jordan. This is not Bethany just north of Jerusalem. Perhaps a 10, 15 minute walk, you could get there. This is Bethany across the Jordan, perhaps a spot just north of the Dead Sea in the Jordan River, out in the Judean desert. This was a good 30 to 50 mile journey down through a mountainous region, down into the hot, dry Judean desert. These guys had traveled a long way to hear John the Baptist, to check out his ministry, and this is what they find out. This crazy guy, all right, this crazy guy is saying, I don't ultimately matter. Imagine the scene. I don't ultimately matter. Who I am is of no real consequence, no real significance. But I'm telling you, Yahweh is here in sandals, and he's revealing the glory of the Lord, revealing the glory of God. And by the way, his sandals, I'm not even worthy to touch, not even worthy to unlatch. All right, now, we're not told what happens here with this delegation. They've traveled all this way. I'm guessing that they spend the night there. They're not just coming for a quick introduction and then or interrogation and then leaving. So just humor me for a moment and imagine that these guys are around a campfire that night. And perhaps they're talking about how crazy this guy is or maybe how weird he is or how creepy he is or that he's really just wild and of no consequence. But perhaps someone who's listening asked this question. Who do you think he's talking about? Don't you think you might have asked that? If you really are processing what this guy has said to you, it's like straight to you. I'm of no consequence, but I'm telling you Yahweh's here, and I'm just here to tell you about him, to point you to him, to prepare the way for him. But he's here in sandals. I'm guessing that someone around that campfire says at some point, who do you think he's talking about? Who is that? And on the very next day, my friends, the magic happens. This Pharisaic interrogation gives way to a prophetic observation. See it in your text. Verse 29. The next day, he saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Can you imagine this, my friends? He's preaching, he's baptizing, he's doing his thing, but then suddenly John the Baptist freezes and he fixes his eyes on a particular person that's walking towards him. He begins to move his hand up. And then he says to everybody listening, Behold, see, 
Behold the man. Behold the lamb who comes to take away the sin of the world. This human being, this man wearing sandals, John is saying, he's the one. He's here right now. You guys are all looking at him right now. The God of the universe, the God who made everything we know and see, he's right there. Can you imagine that? If you're a believer, you could put yourself there. I'm, I'm guessing it's like chills, right? Chills to think about this is God walking toward us. Almighty God taking steps toward us. Remarkable moment. I'm imagining also these Pharisees, these religious who's who. I wonder what they are thinking. Either way, this is a prophetic observation. A prophetic observation of the one. And in this moment, everything John has said already in this text about Jesus kind of collapsed into him. This is Yahweh in sandals, the Lamb of God, coming to take away the sin of the world. Now, this is certainly a crescendo moment, a, a climactic moment in the story, but it, it causes us to pause here for a moment and ask this question. The question is, how does John know this? How does John have the ability here to definitively point at Jesus of Nazareth and say he is the Christ? He is the Messiah, the Son of God. This is a big question for a number of reasons that I think will help us make sense of this text. Namely, I'm asking, when does he know? When does he know for sure? Moreover, how does he know? Or how can he be so sure so definitive in making this pronouncement. So, first of all, let me just deal with when he knows, and let's think a little bit about sequence. Many theologians, and I agree with them, having studied this text, but many theologians believe that this moment here recorded in John chapter 1 is actually subsequent to his baptism, which was instructive for me, because I went into studying this text this week, assuming that this was the moment of his baptism. In fact, it's easy to come to that conclusion when you look at the uh, Gospels of Matthew, Mark, and Luke. There's no moment like this recorded there after his baptism. So I just assume this is the moment of his baptism. John's down there in the Judean desert. He's baptizing people, right? And Jesus comes to be baptized, to commence his earthly ministry. But most theologians believe that this is actually a moment subsequent to his baptism. Thus... What happens here in this moment is John saying in the presence of all these people, he is the Messiah based upon what he's already seen. Does that make sense? If we think about sequence, I think this is important. And it helps us to make sense, in fact, of a couple of other things that we will see when we read. But make no mistake about it, my friends. When John the Baptist sees Jesus walking towards him, it's not a subjective thing. It's not a familial thing. There's no collusion going on that John the Baptist is saying, like, this is my family. This is my cousin. I've known him from a long time before. But John is saying, this is Jesus, definitively, because God has declared it so. God has declared it so. Now see it in your text as it continues. Verse 30. This is he of whom I said, 
John referring to what he's already told these men. After me comes a man who ranks before me because he was before me. Again, John referencing Jesus' eternality. Jesus has always been, and so he comes before me, though in present he comes after me. Verse 31, I myself did not know him or recognize him, but for this purpose I came baptizing with water that he might be revealed to Israel. This is part of my calling, John is saying. God set me apart to baptize people and then ultimately to baptize Jesus, revealing him, commencing his earthly ministry before the world and before Israel. Verse 32, and John bore witness, I saw. So one of the reasons why theologians believe that this is subsequent to John's baptizing of him is because here in John's record, he doesn't talk about his baptism. John just refers to his baptism. He doesn't record it here. The Baptist just refers to the moment. So verse 32, I saw the Spirit descend from heaven like a dove, and it remained on him. Verse 33, I myself did not know him or recognize him, but he who sent me to baptize with water said to me, he on whom you see the Spirit descend and remain, this is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. So what is John saying? John is saying, I am declaring him to be the Messiah based not upon his own perception, based not upon his own recognition, but based upon the revelation of God. This is important, my friends. Not upon his own perception. This is not John saying like, hey, I was in a way his earthly cousin, like we spent time together and I'm just telling you, he's perfect. He's probably the one. This is not what John is saying. This is not John saying, like, my mom told me about some crazy stuff that happened when I was born and when Jesus was born, and I'm just telling you, he's probably the one. It's not what John is saying. John is saying, I myself didn't even recognize him until God revealed him. So John's witness isn't rooted in his own personal testimony or his own personal discovery or his own personal recognition. John's witness of Jesus and about Jesus is rooted in divine revelation, which is significant in its application and import for us. Our friends, for in a very real way, John's witness is the same as ours. You guys tracking with this? John's witness is the same as ours. I think of what Paul says in the book of Romans. So faith comes by hearing and hearing of the words about the Christ. Think about this. In this record here, John chapter 1, John tells us that God, the Father, had set him apart, telling him ahead of time, here's how you will identify the Messiah. The one upon whom you see the Spirit of God descend and remain, that's him. Those were the words of God. This is not the creation of John the Baptist. The invention of John the Baptist or the perception of John the Baptist. These are the words of God. Moreover, we find out in Matthew, Mark, and Luke that when John baptized Jesus, he came out of the water. The Spirit of God did descend and remain upon Jesus Christ. And then a voice rang out from heaven. 
saying, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. John, when he sees Jesus walking towards him this day, based upon the revelation of God himself, is able to say with absolute clarity, with absolute definitiveness, this is the Lamb of God. This is the Lamb of God come to take away the sins of the world. John is confident because God has declared it. Amen? Amen. And by the way, you and I can be equally confident today. God has revealed his word. He has declared his truth. This is what we are resting upon. Similar to Johnny B, my friends. Thus you have, verse 34, and I have seen and have borne witness that this is the Son of God. There is no doubt about it. This is the Son of God. So, what of our, our response? What of our response? Number one, I want to encourage you, especially as we hear John's voice ringing out this statement, Behold the Lamb of God. I want to encourage you to see him. See that Jesus Christ, Jesus of Nazareth, he is the one, and marvel at him. My friends, he is the one, and marvel at him. Throughout this text, we've seen a number of statements to Jesus' identity as Yahweh, as fully God, also wearing sandals, fully God, then fully man. Come, Isaiah 40 tells us to reveal the glory of God. There is much there to praise him for. Amen? Amen. Much there for us to contemplate and just think, man, he is worthy of our praise. God in the flesh. But the title that John the Baptist gives him last is perhaps most descriptive for us and helpful for us this morning as we praise him. As John says, Behold, the Lamb of God come to take away the sins of the world. In that, there is tremendous hope. Amen? Remarkable hope. For if we are honest this morning, we all must realize and recognize that we are sinners. By nature and by choice. If someone were to keep record, keep track of our sins, that document would go on forever. Recording every time we were filled with greed or filled with lust or deceitful, filled with pride and selfishness, unkind, maybe even hateful. This is what we do as sinners. I'm not saying that you sin all the time. We do sin a lot. Perhaps you are sitting here this morning and you're going like, yeah, like I'm acutely aware of my own sin this morning. I've just been in a bad mood. I've had a bad attitude. I've had bad words to say, critical words for my family, whatever. How wonderful is it this morning to read these words? He takes away the sin of the world. Isn't this phenomenal? He came to take away the sin of the world, to erase it, to get rid of your sin so that you and I don't have to live in guilt or shame. This is huge. 
We don't have to live in guilt or shame. We don't have to live in fear. Fearing being exposed. We don't have to live that way. Because Jesus has made it possible for those sins to be taken away, to be erased, to be expunged from our record. Such that the Bible tells us that when we are drawn of the Spirit to repentance and faith, to repent of our sin and from anything that we would offer to God as a reason why He might save us and forgive us, and we just turn to trust in Christ alone, like what He did for us on the cross, being the payment, being the Lamb of God, come to take away the sins of the world. In that moment, we not only are forgiven, not only is our record expunged, but we are given the righteousness of Christ. We are clothed with the righteousness of Christ. How remarkable is that? It's the most amazing truth that there is. When John says, behold the Lamb of God who comes to take away the sin of the world, it should just hit us in our hearts with joy and gladness thankfulness. Thank you, God, for making it possible for me to be forgiven. I cannot live in this guilt and shame. And there is no way in which I can make myself right with him. Praise God. He made it possible himself, himself, to bring us to him, to cleanse us of our sin, and to grant us his righteousness. It's remarkable but it was also costly. It's also costly. You see, in the gospel, the good news is not, hear me, is not that God says, it's all good. Like I heard your prayer, it's all good. I'll waive it. I'll waive the fee. That's not the gospel. Why? For that would not satisfy the justice of God. What did he do? In order to expunge your record, he punished his son. And of course, this was a plan that the triune God, Father, Son, and Spirit orchestrated together before the foundation of the world. That the Son of God would come, Jesus Christ would come, and the Father, as they are distinct in persons, the Father would pour upon him the holy, just wrath of the triune God against sin, against evil, against wickedness, against injustice. It all came to bear on Jesus. Thus, John the Baptist's language, behold, the Lamb, embedded in this language of the Lamb, is that of sacrifice. He was the Lamb that shed his blood to pay the price for our sin. So God the Father does not just say, your sins are waived because I'm able to do that. God the Father is saying, your sins are forgiven because they've already been punished. This is what it means to trust in Jesus. He takes the payment for us. Isn't this wonderful, my friends? It's wonderful. So when John the Baptist points at Jesus as he walks toward him and says, Behold the Lamb of God, he is saying, Jesus has come to die. He will be slaughtered. Jesus will give his knife, give his throat to the knife to shed his blood 
to pay for your sins and mine. This is remarkable. This is why you and I should be filled with such gratitude and joy at this statement, at this proclamation. He is the Lamb of God. Come to take away the sins of the world. What great hope there is in this gospel truth, but also great cost. So marvel at him, my friends. Marvel at him. Then number two, I think we see very clearly in this passage that Johnny B. is the quintessential witness. And so we can learn from him. We must, I think, today learn from him. Marvel at Christ. Learn from John the Baptist. The fact that throughout this text, John the Baptist is trying to get out of the spotlight and point things to Jesus is instructive for us. Johnny B. is remarkable in his humility that he is so passionate to make it not about himself, but about the one. Not about himself, but about Jesus Christ, the one, the Messiah. Now, as I thought about it this week, because again, I think we tend to just read over passages like this too quickly and not think deeply enough about them, without how easy would it have been for John the Baptist to start taking some credit to start kind of enjoying a little bit of that limelight, right? I mean, there were crowds of people that were going after John the Baptist. He was making waves. He was making noise. Thus, the Pharisees go all that way out there to see him, right? Can you imagine with me? Maybe this is a little facetious, but after having said, to be very clear with you, I'm not the Christ, they keep asking him these questions. Well, how about Elijah? How about a prophet? Like, who are you? John the Baptist could have said, well, you know, I, I did say it's not about me, it's about Jesus, but, you know, I did come from nothing. Been out here in the wilderness this whole time, just honing my craft, right, getting my outfit ready to make some noise, right? The hair is right. <laughs> my diet is on point. And I am preaching fire, and people do like it, and people are coming, right? But John is relentless. He's relentless to say, it's not about me. Even those that are following him. We'll see. And Matt will preach next week. <laughs> Follow him. Follow him. We can learn from that. From that humility. Not about me. It's Christ. I recently heard a story about a preacher who became like quasi-famous. If preachers can be famous. And there was a particular moment in which he was invited to preach somewhere and preached a message. And afterwards, someone came up to him wanting his autograph. And one of his um, compatriots there, one of his, his buddies there, witnessed that moment and kind of laughed, kind of mocking the scene, thinking it funny that someone would want a preacher's autograph. But this particular preacher looked to his friend and said, in case you haven't noticed, I'm kind of a big deal. Man, what a shame. What a shame. It had started to kind of go to his head. I, I'm the show. People come to see me or hear Jesus through me. My friend, be aware of that. In your own life, in your own heart, all of us, it's not about us at all. It can never be about us. It's about him. Amen? We together on that? It's about him. 
So we should be looking for ways to kind of get out of the way, even as we share the gospel and just say, you need Jesus. He's it. It's easy, I think, for us sometimes to make our testimonies more about us than about Jesus. Yes, point to the fact that God has changed you. But as quick as possible, let's learn from John the Baptist, as quick as possible, get off of you and onto him. Right? It's all about him. I read a story this week about the famous conductor, Toscanini, who conducted a signature orchestra in Beethoven, Beethoven's Ninth Symphony. After a particular stirring performance, the crowd stood standing ovation and just applauded and continued their applause. And eventually Toscanini leaned forward to the orchestra and he said, it's not about me. It's not about you. It's about Beethoven. That's what he said. Not me, not you, but Beethoven. May our testimony, brothers and sisters, be this. It's not me, it's not you, but Christ. Not me, not you, but Christ. We didn't write the song, but we get a chance to sing it. But let's sing it in such a way that just people hear Jesus. It's about him. Point people relentlessly, relentlessly to Jesus. He's the one, ultimately, that matters. So learn from his humility. Secondly, learn from his clarity. We've already made the point here that John is passionate about who Jesus is, having seen him, having recognized in the moment of his baptism. He did not recognize him before, but in the moment of his baptism... He recognized by the revelation of God, this is the one. This is the Messiah. And in that moment, it all came together for him. Thus, he's able to quote Isaiah 40 and say, this is Yahweh in the flesh. Very clearly pointing people to the truth, the clear truth. John boldly and clearly presenting Jesus as the only way for your sins to be forgiven. Our only hope for forgiveness before God. Let's learn from his humility. Let's learn from his clarity. But then, thirdly and finally, let's be encouraged this morning by his prophetic word about our empowerment. So look with me for a moment at verse 33. Let's not miss this. This is huge. Let's remind ourselves that here John, again, is testifying to this moment in which God revealed to him definitively that this is the Messiah. This is how you will know that this is the Messiah. He says, verse 33, again, I myself did not know him or recognize him. Certainly he knew of him, but had not recognized him before this moment. But he who sent me to baptize with water said to me, he on whom you see the Spirit descend and remain, this is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. What is he talking about there? What John the Baptist is prophesying about there is a moment that will happen years later on the day of Pentecost in which Jesus will send his Holy Spirit. This is what he promised in John chapter 14, John chapter 15, John chapter 16. 
It's better, he says to his disciples, that I go physically, bodily, that I might send my spirit. So what should we understand here, verse 33? This is John pointing forward to a moment in which Jesus will baptize every true believer with the Holy Spirit of God, immerse every true believer into the family of God and indwell them with his Holy Spirit. So a couple of things that are of note and are remarkable in this. One is this. You must understand today, and you need to understand today, and be encouraged the same spirit that descended upon Jesus and remained with him, that set apart John the Baptist and empowered him, that same spirit dwells in you. Same one. Same Holy Spirit. If you have been brought to this place of repentance and faith, you have that same spirit, the same spirit John saw descend and remain with Jesus. He's in you. If you've repented of your sins and have trusted in Christ alone, you have his spirit with you, empowering you to bear witness to Christ. What a blessing this is. It's the same spirit. Paul actually says in Romans chapter 8, it's the same spirit that rose Jesus from the dead. He dwells in you. Question, do you believe it? My friends, do you believe that? Legitimate question because I think, again, sometimes we just don't think about these things. Same one that indwelt Jesus and John the Baptist, he's in you. Better believe it. If you know Christ today, you're indwelt and empowered by him. So your witness, even in this way, is not about you. As you testify to Jesus, it's not about you. It is all about him. Amen? He's the one that empowers it. He's the one that brings forth fruit. So be encouraged by this. I close with this story from Charles Spurgeon. Told of the time in which he was preparing to preach at a large auditorium. And before the evening service, he was during the day in the auditorium all by himself, just trying to get used to the acoustics what his voice would sound like in that auditorium. And so over and over again, he just shouted, Behold the Lamb of God come to take away the sins of the world. Behold the Lamb of God come to take away the sins of the world. We later came to find out that the building wasn't, in fact, completely empty. A janitor was in there cleaning the building, getting it ready for the evening service. And over and over again, she heard those words. Behold the Lamb of God come to take away the sins of the world. And God used that to draw her to himself. She was saved that day. And the remarkable thing about it is he wasn't even trying to preach. He was practicing, just getting his ears used to the auditorium. How wonderful is this, my friends? It's not about us. You didn't write the song, but you need to sing it. Can I encourage you? Sing it out. Sing it out. Share Christ. Marvel at him. Yahweh in sandals, revealing glory. The Lamb of God come to take away your sins and mine. Marvel at him. But then, say it. Share it. Get the news out there. And God will use you in a profound way. Let's pray. Thank you, God, for your grace. Thank you for this continuing story that we get to look at week after week in the Gospel of John.
Thank you for this opening narrative. This moment between John the Baptist and this delegation from the religious who's who. Thank you for giving us an example of someone who just relentlessly pointed to Jesus. Jesus, thank you for coming, for being the lamb, sacrificed for sin to take it all away. We praise you. We worship you. In your name, amen.